Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. <laughs> Korea is a divided peninsula, north and south, communism versus capitalism, cold war, and the threat of total annihilation. Korea's foreign ministry says the U.S. threat makes the outbreak of war in the Korean peninsula unavoidable. North Korea is ruled by a chubby, chain-smoking dictator that loves basketball and may or may not have gout. He's also driving the entire country into abject poverty. South Korea? Yeah, that is a different story. South of the 38th parallel, you'll find a vibrant, LED-lit, economic powerhouse. Exciting, innovative, and fast-paced. Korean barbecue, Samsung phones, world-leading cosmetics and cars. South Korea exports everything, and they're really good at it. South Korean culture is flourishing worldwide, and it has taken the spotlight off its relationship with its noisy northern neighbors. So forget politics. Forget the DMZ. Forget the threat of nuclear war. Today, South Korea is best known for its pop culture, film, TV, and of course, music. And the Oscar goes to Parasite. This week on Passport, we're heading to Seoul. South Korea's electrified, technified, high-rise capital and its cultural beating heart. It's the birthplace of K-pop, a very particular kind of music that has become a global phenomenon. But just how did Korean culture get so big? And can K-pop tell us anything about the soul of Seoul? Well, it turns out it can teach us quite a lot. A destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos. We both live in Barcelona, but we're not really from here. We're kind of from everywhere. We're friends, filmmakers, and world-class ramblers. Passport is the show that will take you to the places you've never heard of. We'll introduce you to the people who you would never have otherwise met. And we'll tell you the kind of stories you only hear when you throw away the guidebook. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport. To call K-pop a phenomenon doesn't really begin to touch the impact it's had on Seoul and South Korea and the world. 
For anything you could knock K-pop on, there's one thing that's clear when you watch a show or talk to a fan. That's the pure, hyped joy. K-pop is optimistic, bright, hopeful. Its messages are normally of love, tenderness, survival, and fun. Given the history of pop music, they are themes which have always resonated with people. But this feels different. A veteran K-pop roadie told us the tours are the closest things he's come to Beatlemania. BTS, K-pop's most popular group right now, is estimated to have over 90 million fans. Those fans call themselves ARMY. They created an entire online ecosystem. They trade homemade art, they provide aid to other ARMY members in crisis or in need, and they raise massive amounts of money for charity, all in the name of the K-pop band they love. Fans of K-pop feel like this isn't just a genre of music. To them, K-pop is a revolution. We wanted to find out why, so we brought in producer and music nut, Harry Stott. The only thing I know about Korea is amazing barbecue and... I know films. Well, that's pretty useful for this episode, seeing as we're covering... The Korean wave. Yeah, what is the Korean wave, Harry? So the Korean wave, or they call it Hallyu in Korean, it basically describes the explosion of Korean music, K-pop, Korean cinema, and K-dramas, which started in the 1990s and then has now swept over the world. Why I think it's so interesting is that, you know, why did it happen in Seoul? Why did it happen in South Korea? This place, I mean, you compare it with China or Japan, these two massive economies, massive cultures right next door who have a history of, you know, not the same history as South Korea, which is basically a history of war and dictatorship and colonialization for the past hundred years, which is so close to the north, so close to this mad dictatorship where there's, and there's like a constant threat and yet... It is South Korean pop culture now, which is the thing, the trendsetter in Asia. I mean, it's it's one of those things like North Korea is this weird, washed out 20th century strongman dictatorship where you can imagine starving farmers and weird brutalist buildings with a lot of Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un pictures everywhere. And then the South... They're just on top of everything. Everything, it's like they're precise, they're efficient, they know what they're doing. You think of a place that works somehow. It is odd, though. There, there is kind of this feeling, though, that what happened there all of this time, dictatorship after dictatorship after dictatorship, it's odd that it seems like the biggest influence on on music there was the Backstreet Boys. We've been suppressed for so long. We just want to dance. All I want to do is dance. <laughs> Well, first, Harry, take us, what, what was your experience of K-pop before you started on this episode? Didn't know much. Didn't know much at all until recently, basically, until like the explosion of BTS. You know, you see them on all the late night shows in the US. You see them on like Ellen DeGeneres in LA, where that's being filmed. They're going mad. And you're just like, what? Who are these guys? Most of them don't even speak English. Only one of them, RM, the main guy, speaks English. And yet they have this huge, crazed following. I love how you know all their names now and all their stats and stuff, like their measurements, like what they bench. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, Harry, so you're a K-pop originalist. You're into OG K-pop. I'm a purist. I always have been. And I'm a <laughs> K-pop purist too, yeah. The early 90s, that's when it peaked. And then, you know, it's been a, <laughs> it's been a, a downward slope since then. It's like, since Tupac was shot, K-pop's been shit. <laughs> exactly. Where do we go first then, Harry? Where's, where's, where's the first stop on the trip? Yeah, so the way I wanted to go into this was, like, what are the two big things in 2020 that have uh, put Korean culture on the map? Number one, Parasite which obviously won Best Picture at the Oscars this year. And number two, the rise of BTS. So their album, Map of the Soul 7, became the second quickest selling album of all time. So 2020 really feels like the year when... K-pop blew up. Exactly. But the other interesting thing is they are so different. So BTS is like those videos. It's 
super sweet, sickly sweet. Whereas Parasite is this gritty, uh, dark, very funny film, which Im- you immediately you can tell it says a lot about Seoul and about Korean society. But why are they so different? Also, if you went to Seoul, could you find both of those sides to the city? Could you find the super shiny BTS side? And could you find the dark, gritty parasite side? And don't forget, at the end of this episode, we're going to give you our saved pins. These are the places we found that you won't want to miss on your K-pop-fueled trip to Seoul. Seoul is a vast, sprawling city. It's cut through with mountains and rivers, a coast to the west, and the DMZ line a stone's throw to the north. It's home to some 10 million people. In Korea, they call it the special city, and for good reason. Seoul's importance within the country is outsized. It's more pivotal to South Korea than DC is in the US, Paris is in France, or Beijing is in China. It's the national capital, the financial center, the home of the finest universities, restaurants, and it's where Hallyu, that massive eruption of Korean culture worldwide, was born. Seoul is where all young Koreans with dreams of success come to live out their showbiz fantasies or get spat out by the machine trying. But if you were to walk through the city today, could you feel the Korean wave's impact? Could you see it? Could you hear it? I needed to find someone who knows the city and understands the Hallyu phenomenon to compare it with pop culture in the West. Someone who was in Seoul when the Korean wave first began to break. I first came here back in 2000 in May when Kim Jong-il and uh, President Kim Dae-jung met in Pyongyang. Uh, That's my biggest first memory of Seoul, is being in an orange tent, eating fish and drinking soju, and seeing these two world leaders meet in North Korea. Paul Matthews is a Seoul-based actor, director, writer and broadcaster. He's a big fan of Hallyu. He even had his own show about it on Seoul's Adidang Radio one of the biggest English-language stations in the country. Paul moved from the UK to South Korea for an acting gig at the turn of the millennium, but he loved the place. He fell in love with a local girl and has stuck around ever since. So I think I've had a pretty good experience in terms of seeing the city change over the last 20 years, and it has changed a hell of a lot. Back when Paul arrived, Seoul was not the cosmopolitan, high-tech place it is today. But as Hallyu took off, so did the city. Seoul is now one of the most technologically advanced places in the world. They've got the fastest internet speeds and they own the most smartphones per person in any country. K-pop, too, is woven into the fabric of Seoul. You'll hear it blaring out of bars and taxis in hip districts like Hongdae and booming out of venues like SM Town, a six-floor museum-come-mall-come-K-pop theme park in the city's centre. But if you really want the real K-pop experience, there's only one place to go. You've heard of Kangnam, for example, Kangnam style. I sure have, and so have you. You remember South Korean singer Psy and his mega-hit. With the horse-riding dance, the bizarre, slightly insane music video. Before BTS, Kangnam Style was the first Korean pop song to really cut through in the West. It was actually the first video on YouTube to reach 1 billion views. It wasn't Kanye, Katy Perry, Charlie Bit My Finger or even that video about leaving Britney alone that breached YouTube's one billion mark. It was a song in Korean about a neighbourhood in Seoul. And Kangnam Style is a song all about Seoul. Kangnam is a neighbourhood. It's pretty much the Upper East Side, the Chelsea, the Beverly Hills of South Korea. 
Gangnam redeveloped itself as a, as a K-pop area. There's a there's a huge statue of size hands from Gangnam style. There's actually a Gangnam style monument at the at the crossroads at Gangnam Station. They have hologram K-pop concerts. I've been a couple of times and I've seen I've seen Psy live as a hologram. Hologram concerts are a big deal in Seoul. Tupac at Coachella eat your heart out. Korea, Korea is a beautiful country, but people don't come here to look at the buildings or to go to the parks. It's not been a tourist hotspot. One thing that has driven people to visit has been K-drama, K-film and K-pop. So people don't come here to visit a famous building. They come here to visit the famous location where that video was shot or where that movie takes place. K-pop is more than just music. It's part of the city and it's driving tourism. But fans flying in from across the world on a pilgrimage to their favourite Hallyu locations are only likely to see one side of the city. The pristine, shining K-pop side. The Gangnam side. If you live in Gangnam um, and you live in one of the apartments in Gangnam, you are very, very rich. The elite of Korea. I think, I think that is the stereotype. But there's another face to Seoul, one much less travelled by outsiders. I still see on a regular basis um, elderly people on the streets collecting card or collecting cans with big carts that they push along by themselves. There is poverty out there. It's not necessarily discussed. It's certainly not seen in mainstream popular culture so much. One piece of popular culture that did take on Seoul's social inequality was Parasite. Korean cinema is the other leading light of Hallyu. And in many ways, Parasite's Oscar win owes a lot to K-pop's success. K-pop has been on the world's radar for at least a decade, and that opened people up to the culture and language of South Korea. Parasite was able to walk through that door. But this is where the similarities end. Parasite takes all that we've learned about Seoul through K-pop and flips it on its head. If K-pop represents Gangnam and the elite of Seoul, Parasite represents the underbelly. Parasite runs that line so well because it's super amazing to look at. It's re- has it's it's beautiful. That movie reeks of like fuck you-ness, you know? and and Parasite does something that. K-pop also does incredibly well, which is to make something that is really universal, that you can completely tap into no matter where you are in the world, but that doesn't lose that Korean core. There's no other movie like it. It's like Hitchcock making Upstairs, Downstairs. I like that you made sure to watch the movie before we were going to record this episode to avoid a Game of Thrones situation. The amount of grief I've gotten from friends and family around the world from that first episode is being insane. You are, it's, you're like traumatized. It's very funny. Well, actually then, Neil, I guess to redeem yourself, can you give us the plot in, you know, a couple sentences? So Parasite focuses on two very different families in Seoul. One family, is it the Kims? Who are lower class scraping to get by and this incredibly wealthy family um the parks and the young the son of the kims kind of infiltrates their family by posing as an english teacher and then through a bizarre farcical recommendation sequence which is brilliant in the film they end up hiring the whole family but at about an hour in it turns into something else completely. <laughs> the emblems, basically, of the two houses is one of the most important things. The Kims live in, yeah, this, like, squalid, semi-underground apartment, which they call in Korean, it's called a banjiha. And they actually exist in Seoul. I mean, not all of them are that kind of horrible. The opening of Parasite is the kids trying to get wi-fi connection in in their in their house and they work out that the only way the only place they can get it is right by the toilet which is up on it's like on a shelf (laughs) on a shelf 
that detail that detail was fantastic because it, it says so much about the relationship to technology the relationship to your phones but also what it means to live in a banjiha yeah it's the kind of soul you never think about yeah so paul who we just heard from he actually lives in a banjiha yeah i mean uh, and he explained to me it's a pretty normal thing to do and it's a pretty cheap way of living in a big very expensive city so when we were talking about it before we were saying oh what's so like it's led lit it's high rise and the banji has feel like the perfect emblem of the other side of soul so first of all the word banji literally means half basement or sub basement so it's not quite fully basement um your windows will probably be just about on ground level banji has give off a serious bunker vibe that's what they were originally made to be a place for people in Seoul to hide from North Korean attack. They're the perfect visual representation of Seoul's underground. They've been quite depressing and sometimes dangerous. The first one I lived in, um, there were big um, heavy rains in the monsoon season. Uh, We had some kind of pipe burst or some kind of overflow. And at one point during the monsoon season, like in the movie, we were bailing water. Um, I think one thing they did get right was the smell. Um, One big plot point in the movie is that Mr. Kim, the father of the family, has this this banjiha smell, this smell of mould and um, mustiness. And a lot of those banjihas do have that. It doesn't mean you necessarily carry it with you, but you get used to living in this sort of half-damp, mouldy atmosphere. I could smell that in my nostrils when he said that line. Parasite stands out as a piece of South Korean popular culture which talks about reality. It's something you won't hear anything about in K-pop, which prefers crayons and rainbows. But why? Music and art have always been linked with protest, and that used to be true in Korea too. Music played a big part when the country became a democracy in the late 80s, with singers like Kim Kwang-sok leading the student protests from the front. So what happened in the meantime? There must be something about South Korea that explains why its most popular form of artistic expression, music, lost its protesting streak and evolved into the cultural equivalent of bubblegum. K-pop represents what South Koreans think is the coolest, the best, the most attractive part of themselves, South Korean culture. That's John Lee, a Korean-American who is a professor of social theory at Berkeley. Now, that might not sound like the most obvious profession for a K-pop fanboy, but trust me, he knows what he's talking about. I chatted to him over the phone while he was in Tokyo about his book on Korean culture's meteoric rise. It's basically a Hallyu Bible. We'll link it to you in the show notes. I mean, to give you a sense of how proud South Koreans are, uh, and even the political elite, I mean, when uh, President Moon of South Korea uh, greeted Donald Trump when he came to visit South Korea, the person they trotted out, the Moon administration, to greet Trump and his wife was not what you might expect, you know, a Confucian scholar, uh, traditional music, but a K-pop group. But the irony, of course, is that there's nothing particularly Korean about them. John says that Korean culture is in a kind of crisis, that there's an emptiness about what it means to be Korean, that its people confuse what the country used to be with what it is now. But what did South Korea used to be? There were decades of poverty under dictator Park Chung-hee until he got assassinated in 1979. In South Korea, Park Chung-hee, who ruled the country for more than 18 years, is dead. And before that, there was the Korean War in the 50s, which partitioned the North and South. As the Air Force steps up its operations to harass and impede the communist aggressors. And before that, 
there was 40 years of brutal Japanese colonial rule and the carnage of World War II. The former king of Korea lives on the bounty of his Japanese masters. And before that, hundreds of years of Chinese influence. Now that's a lot of turbulence. Korea spent so much time being ruled by someone else, it never had a chance to fully develop its own identity. So all of a sudden in the early 90s, when the country became a democracy, there was basically a clean slate on which the country was able to construct a brand new culture. The culture they chose was distinctly American. conditions that made K-pop possible is precisely that you were able to effectively erase all that happened in Korea or South Korea uh, until the 1980s. Everything in Korea changed in the 90s. The country fully embraced the West. It was a fresh start. And for young Koreans, the soundtrack was American hip-hop and R&B. The song you're listening to right now is by the first artist to put a Korean spin on those genres. His name is Seoul Taji, and he started a youth culture revolution in Seoul, which evolved into the K-pop craze. He sounds like a Korean Vanilla Ice. This is his breakout track, I Know. But that came out in 1992. Things would soon change at a rapid pace. Hi everyone. Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The South Korean government saw how popular this kind of music was becoming in the 90s. And so they jumped on board the K-pop gravy train to help shore up their own finances and improve their global image. They pumped bucket loads of cash into the industry, and the K-poppers did not waste a penny. Over the next few years, the industry meticulously came up with a winning musical blueprint that all the groups followed. It was highly manufactured, designed to mimic the red-hot trends of the US and Japan. John calls it the K-pop formula. The current kind of permutation of K-pop really began in very uh, well, mid to late 1990s. I mean, that's when the leading entertainment agencies uh, who produced them were essentially copycat groups of U.S. and Japanese idol boy groups and girl groups. But that's when they begin to formulate a very successful formula. The K-pop formula is like the Backstreet Boys on steroids. Massive groups, all of the same gender, six-packs for the fellas, long legs for the ladies, and blemish-free skin all round. Once this was perfected, which John reckons was about 2008, the industry saw no reason to change it. Pop groups which in the West are now a relic of the 90s remain the dominant style in Korea today. 
Yes, it was originally a youth revolution, but K-pop is all about business. And like in the rest of the country, exporting is vital because the entire Korean economic model is basically export or die. The government even put career unique standards on anything and everything coming into the country. So whether it's cars or mobile phones, Koreans will always go Korean. These standards are also the key to K-pop perfection, and they are set by the three biggest entertainment agencies, YG, JYP, and SM. These guys pull the strings and crack the whips of K-pop. I mean, you know, so they're very um, authoritarian in some ways, many ways. I mean, they really, truly micromanage the stars' lives. Part of the formula of K-pop is that to become a K-pop star, you undergo training for at least five years, sometimes as many as ten. K-pop is the cool side of Korean society, but it's an odd, different kind of cool. In America, pop stars have an effortless aura. Most of the time, they look like they don't give a shit. But in K-pop, things look purposefully engineered. The music, the singing, the dancing, it's all flawless, but only because the industry is run with an iron fist. K-pop is really a kind of facade, a perfect picture of an Americanized Korean society. In a way, Parasite was the response to K-pop, washing away that perfection in a flood of reality. Ooh. Getting deep on the K-pop there, yeah. Yeah, the thing about it that kind of sticks out is how high the standard is at all levels. Everything is so precisely tailored. I think actually more than comparing it to pop in the West, I would compare it more to like athletes that have a very short window of time where they can perform and you just milk them for what they're worth, <laughs> right? Pop breaks us all, and and the many are strong at the broken places. Ooh, wow. that's, a, that's a bit of yeah. me and a bit of uh, Hemingway. I'm just <laughs> I, now I'm having another a very funny parallel, which is um, Tiger King. You know, <laughs> Tiger Cub Farms, where it's just like you make all your money on the Tiger Cubs. And then once they're out of being cubs, you know, you just like, you have to you shoot them in the back of the head. Is that <laughs> so? I feel like the K pop stars are like the tiger cubs in Tiger King. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Like the machine is, is the same, you know? The American pop machine or the British pop machine certainly does the same thing, you know, casting. You can't sing, don't worry, we'll get somebody you know, who can. No, I get it. And they've, they've obviously got it because it's, you know, it's working. Making crazy amount of money and making making a lot of people super happy. I mean, you look at some of the fan groups for for BTS, like the BTS Army. Here's stories of of so many fans who, especially in in the US, who really found their sanctuary in K-pop. I know you mean it's like I, I'm looking at it like the athletics comparison is like is is so true but it, i think for the fans it's, it's sort of stopped becoming music and it's become like a club it's almost like musical cosplay you know it's got that same kind of draw it's becoming mainstream like you know blackpink one of the biggest girl bands are on the new lady gaga record you're like bts doing songs with steve aoki Nicki minaj in the pop world people are saying there is something kind of cool about bts about blackpink about exo about all these big k-pop bands it's that weird kind of you know ephemeral thing cool how do you define it but k-pop now has it which is something pretty new and pretty different things have come on a lot in k-pop since so taji they've even changed beyond recognition since kangnam style BTS are literally the world's biggest boy band right now. They're even doing speeches at the UN. Thank you, Mr. Secretary General. My name is Kim Namjoon, also known as RM, the leader of the group BTS. 
The K-popers are K-popping their way to big collabs with Western artists. And something else is happening too. Young musicians from the US and Europe are now flocking to Seoul to get in on the act. In 2014, the world was introduced to the first ever all-American, non-Asian K-pop boy band, EXP Edition. Sounds like pretty standard K-pop, right? Well, it's actually by four guys from the US who didn't speak a word of Korean but went to Seoul to make it big. For the first time ever, pop stars aren't leaving Seoul for Hollywood. They're leaving Hollywood for Seoul. But this trend still didn't make a huge amount of sense to me, so I called up one of EXP Edition's members, Koki Tomlinson. Hello? Hey man, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Koki is from Texas, the son of Japanese and German parents. But he's chatting to me from L.A., where he lives now. K-pop has always sought to expand beyond the borders of Korea. And there has been a rise in non-Asian foreigners in K-pop in the past couple years. When the EXP edition guys first came together in 2014, that definitely wasn't the case. BTS were just getting going, Blackpink weren't even a thing, and other than an underground fan base, the rest of the world hardly knew anything about K-pop. Neither did Koki, but he saw a K-pop-themed casting in New York called I'm Making a Boy Band and decided to go for it. But this wasn't your average audition. EXP Edition actually began their life as a thesis project at Columbia University. Grad student Bora Kim wanted to put together a K-pop boy band to examine, amongst other things, the roles of masculinity in the U.S. versus Asia. One of the first times we ever got together, they um, <laughs> we walked into the studio space, and on the floor they had laid out this like lush um, sheepskin type rug, just like all over the floor, <laughs> and they just like dressed us up in these outfits and like we're like, okay, you're gonna do a photo shoot now, and like hug each other and roll around and like. <laughs> it was like the most it was the most bizarre experience for all of us because we had no idea what to expect going into the project and then also it was something none of us had ever really done before. After the cuteness workshops and posing sessions that Bora had laid out for them, EXP Edition started performing at art installations and studios in New York. That was until their story got picked up online and things became a little less academic. We started to realize that what we were doing was more serious than we initially thought was what, like the first time we went viral. I think we had just a handful of images on our Instagram and no music out, just a handful of images and just the concept of us blew up on I think like K-pop Twitter or Instagram and that kind of snowballed into this crazy viral sensation. Hello YouTube, this is DKDKTV. EXP edition. What is EXP? Experience? Yeah, I assume it's not XP edition. All that hype before they'd even recorded any music. The boys got straight in the studio and made some tracks. Like this uplifting banger. Feel like this. They grew and grew, and before they knew it, EXP Edition were leaving New York and off to Seoul.
I, I think we only sort of fully realized that we were moving to Korea was when we were actually like moving to Korea. <laughs> and, and what did your friends think about the whole thing? Did they did they know much about K-pop or Korea before you left? <laughs> they were no, absolutely not. No, <laughs> so many people had no idea about K-pop, and we we actually ended up introducing a lot of like our friends to it through what we were doing. And we actually had one guy who was a mentor to us who, when we were going, he was telling us to pack like energy bars and we don't know what kind of food they have there. <laughs> it's like Korea is it's not like it's not a third world country or even a developing country. Like it's it was just kind of amusing that that sort of perception of Korea still existed. When EXP edition went viral, it wasn't just for their tunes and their non-Asian look. They found themselves caught up in the middle of a controversy on two continents. They were accused of cultural appropriation in America. I'm gonna Google K-pop definitions. Isn't K-pop Korean. Korean? And they were considered a gimmick in parts of Korea too. Luckily for Koki, not everyone in Seoul was so harsh. In Korea, they used this word shingihada, which means to be like new and refreshing. And, and a lot of people thought what we were doing was fascinating and interesting because it was so different. Nobody had done what we were doing. In order to be successful in K-pop, Koki had to work, and work really hard. EXP Edition were putting in gruelling 12 to 15 hour days training in the studio, and when they got home, it was Korean language lessons and singing lessons all evening. And the consequences of this relentless work ethic and the constant scrutiny that goes along with it can be truly shocking. On a more somber note, singer Kuhara was found dead last night at her home in Seoul. K-pop fans are in great shock and mourning after the death of K-pop star and actress Seolli. The suicide of K-pop star Jonghyun made global headlines and highlighted the fact that South Korea has the highest suicide rate in the world. But all of this goes way beyond K-pop. The issues within the music industry just shine a light on issues in Korean society. Work and study culture in much of Asia is non-stop, 24-7. In Korea specifically, kids grow up with the pressure of passing a never-ending succession of exams and tests. And they're tough. I, I think there's more of an emphasis on the amount of time that you put into your work as opposed to productivity, perhaps. You are expected to kind of stick around and, and work at your desk until at least your boss goes home, which um, can sometimes feel like never. So, That's Crystal Tai. She's a Chinese-Canadian journalist who lived in Seoul for years, writing about lifestyle trends in the city. Despite the stress it causes, Korea's drive for achievement is the reason why it's such a success story. South Korea was Bloomberg's most innovative economy for six years straight, and being ranked the OECD's third hardest working country is a big part of what put them there. But with the global economy as it is today, there is a new generation of Koreans who are working as hard as their parents, if not harder, but with lower salaries and worse jobs. And for some young Koreans, this is all becoming too much. They are now starting to push back against the pressure to be perfect. It's become a movement, and it's called Hanjuk. So Hanjuk as a term, it, it basically means tribe of one in, in Korean. Hanjuk is like a solo lifestyle movement where people live alone and they enjoy going out um, or staying home and participating in one-person or single-person activities. Young Koreans have decided to go it alone. They're choosing to live life for themselves and by themselves. Crystal's writing a book about it, released later this year. I think that people sometimes use it tongue-in-cheek to describe the activities that they're engaging in, like, oh, I'm going to see a movie tonight alone, I'm hunjuk. But then there's also the very, like, actual people who live, like, alone, and those people do tend to be judged by society. 
Korea is generally considered to be a pretty collectivist society, which means that very traditional family structures and societal roles have maintained into the modern day. Hanjuk is a real break with this norm. In Korea, it's actually really hard to dine out alone. I had a friend who came to South Korea three years ago, and she went to like this famous seafood slash barbecue restaurant to have dinner alone. And she was just sitting there enjoying her crab stew. And like the table next to her, I think they tapped her on the shoulder and they were like, what are you doing? You know, you look so weird eating by yourself right now. People are taking pictures of you. You shouldn't do that next time. And she was like, what the hell? More and more these days, Hanjuk is going mainstream. There are now a bunch of places in Seoul which welcome you to Hanbap, which means eat alone. And at other joints, you can drown your sorrows and Hansul, drink alone. Hanjuk is a new chapter in the story of Seoul. It's one that sees young Koreans put the middle finger up at a society which demands constant perfection. There has been a bit of backlash against maybe the the beauty standards and the behavioral norms that like some people feel that K-pop has set upon like young women in in Korean society. As for Hunjuk, I think it's more reactionary against like the lack of economic opportunity uh, or job opportunities and social mobility within South Korean society. Yeah, it's it's impossible to be perfect in in every single way. This idea I thought was really amazing of them being this kind of very collective, very peer-obsessed culture that it was it was a bad thing to go and have dinner by yourself or, you know, I love I love a good kanjuk. I just thought it was a it was I thought it was a really nice way to kind of tie it up, almost like a revolution of individualism. And I think like Parasite, it feels so opposed to the kind of ideals that uh, that K-pop puts forward. So K-pop's big groups, it's perfect, it's amazing production value. And then something like Hanjuk is so opposite. It's young Koreans, you know, reveling in this idea that you don't have to be perfect. You can go and do things by yourself, which would normally mean that most of Korean society kind of looks down on you. But it's a movement which is saying, no, we can we can do what we want, which I thought was pretty interesting and powerful. It's great. You can dance by yourself. Just ask Andres. As I do often now. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the coolest thing that I think you managed to do, Harry, was to draw this line between Parasite and BTS. Like, that's a very cool way to look at a place. You know, when Korea became a modern country in the 90s, K-pop immediately became its like standard bearer. It represents the good sides, but also the bad sides, like the success and amazing innovation and high standards in Seoul. But then also the stuff which comes alongside that. And we're definitely at some sort of crossroads now where K-pop has to evolve or continue to evolve if it's going to survive. And there's going to have to be a kind of reckoning with this darkness. It needs a. It needs like a. a Cry me a river. <laughs> Precisely, Neil. That's exactly what K-pop needs. This week's pins are your guide to the real K-pop experience in Seoul. Number one is Gangnam, Seoul's glitziest K-pop neighborhood. Take a selfie doing the pony dance in front of the Sai Han statue or visit the Gangnam style monument. That's a monument near Gangnam Station. Number two. So you're in Seoul and Sai's not playing? No problem. Head down the road to Gangnam to a K-pop hologram concert at SM Town and pretend that you're seeing the real thing. Boom. Number three. Live like a hardcore Sasang fan. And if you're patient, you can loiter outside one of the big entertainment agencies' buildings and stalk K-pop idols. 
or you can get proper cuckoo and hire a sassing taxi to stalk your idol around all day as they go about their business. Yes, these are real things. And no, they're probably not 100% legal, so, you know, do it at your own risk. Stalking your idol can make you hungry. So why not get some Korean barbecue by yourself, Hanjuk style? And why not make it Asociero Mushi, owned by BTS's very own Jin? They serve traditional Sierra Mushi style steamed meats and vegetables, but the octopus is the dish to go for. And now I am very hungry. Number five. You can't leave Seoul without doing K-pop karaoke. I mean, come on. So visit Hongdae, Seoul's hippest of neighborhoods filled with students, clubs, and bars for Night at the Norabangs, Korean's favorite karaoke rooms where you can soulfully destroy the K-pop songs you love. Thanks for listening to Passport, guys. Next week, we are off to Scotland, kind of. Join us for our very first Misinfonation. You want to find out what that is? We'll see you on Tuesday. Bye. This episode of Passport was written, produced, and edited by Harry Stott. Big thanks to Paul Matthews, John Lee, Crystal Tai, Koki Tomlinson, Bora Kim, and everyone at IMABB Entertainment for giving us a taste of soul. You can buy John's book from all good retailers, and the same for Crystal's when it comes out later this year. Keep on the lookout for more music from Koki and EXP Edition. And in the meantime, tune into Paul on Seoul's Adidang Radio on Monday and Wednesdays to stay in the loop with all things K-pop. We'll link you more info on all of this in the show notes. Music from this episode, including our theme tune, comes from Nick Tanner. Additional music by EXP Editions, Sai and Seo Tajian Boys, with additional tracks from Thirst Flow. Kinka, Gustav von Kirchenhoff, Deep River Mountain Dew, Apple Quests, Lieutenant Fitzgibbon's Men, Brevin, and the Battery Operated Orchestra. Archival audio courtesy of internetarchive.org. You can find all of the archival credits in our show notes. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kozneski, Stacey Book, Dominic Ferrari, and Avi Glijansky are probably working on some choreography in fabulous outfits. They also executive produce the show, which is hosted by me and Andres Bartos. We'll see you in the next place. Mm-hmm.